Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I'm Tristan Johnson, and we have new technology, and it's going to be exciting. This is the future, buying old microphones. Uh, all right, so I'm here with my co-host, Susan Anthony. Hello. And coming back to the show for her reunion tour, uh, <laughs> social science PSAC st- uh, steward uh, slash history PhD student, Kaylee Bauer, you're here with us today. That's a thing. That's a thing. I am. So last time we came, it was uh, union-focused, and uh, today we're going to talk about the other hat you wear, mm-hmm. that of PhD student. Ah, yes. So uh, tell us a little bit about what kind of work you're doing. Uh, writing now, research <laughs> and writing. You have to be very good at sitting still and being quiet. <laughs> and, uh, and what about... Sorry. Pardon? <laughs> what, what do you, what I didn't do you, hear you. What's, what's your research about? Oh, I, I study a cemetery in Kingston and uh, the transition of death culture uh, in the 19th century through that cemetery because I think it's a really good microcosm of what was going on. Cataraki is exemplary in a lot of ways. I mean, it's its financial structure is fairly typical of other cemeteries. Aesthetically, it's typical. Um you know, it had some growing pains that are definitely unique to the area because anything is dictated to an extent by local concerns. But the reason it grew and developed as it did, um, I think, was a combination of local concerns, but also these broad uh, international trends, right? So it's it's nice to be able to generalize with that one little piece. So it's like a case study. So... Um isn't everything in history a case study at this true. point? Isn't yeah, that yeah. just what we do, really? Everything's too too big to do, or too much to do uh, everything at once. So, it's true. <laughs> uh, I guess the first question would be, like, I have so many whys. Like, uh, why Kingston? Why graveyards? What, what drag you to this topic? I think history's always autobiographical to an extent. Um, I actually did my master's. I did a two-year master's at the University of Calgary supervised by David Marshall. He was, is a religious historian. He studied secularization, was engaged in the secularization debate. And I think that really shaped the way my master's thesis looked. Um, I studied Freemasonic funerals as uh, a male homosocial space of Protestant religious practice. Um, You know, and that was really interesting. And I wanted to keep going with that and I wanted to keep looking at the ritual implications, and I wanted to look at these spaces where sort of the the mundane aspects of life, like having to dispose of a body or, you know, having to maintain burial ground, sort of intersect with, you know, very high-level theological and abstract concerns, like what happens after you die? How do people deal with grief, you know? Uh, why Kingston? Originally, I was planning on doing it in Toronto, but when I started looking at the records from Mount Pleasant, they weren't as advertised. Um, it was largely burial registers, and you can't get a lot out of burial registers. People think they're terrific, but they're not. <laughs> um, Cataraki uh, in Kingston, I, I came across quite by chance because I was digging through the Queen's archives, frantically trying to find a new cemetery to work with because 
Toronto wasn't going to work. London was there were there were too many, and some of them are still administered by the Anglican Church here. So, plus I didn't I didn't really want to work in London. Like slide into irrelevancy was the way I saw it, right? So it turned out Cataraki was one of the earliest, and the records were really extensive, and had all been donated to Queens. So it was very easy. Uh, additionally, Kingston is the seat of the diocese for the Anglican Church. And uh, it's also sort of central to some of the synods uh, of Presbyterian Church, it's central to the Methodists. So religiously speaking, it's, it's a very central location. You know, and it, Queens is there. There's just a lot of institutions there. So there's a lot of paperwork. Institutions leave a lot of paperwork. Also, it's such a beautiful cemetery. I think it's probably one of the best examples we have in Canada of the garden-style cemetery. Very well-chosen space. So my, my question then is, uh, this is uh, Kataraki, you said, is the name of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. When did it originate? When did people start using it as a burial site? Well, the company was founded in 1850. Uh, use started probably around 1855 or so. It's... It's a little bit difficult to tell in the burial registers because a lot of the bodies from the urban burial ground that Cataraki replaced were actually moved. So you get burials in Cataraki that are listed as being as far back as the 1830s and they don't always indicate if a body was moved. So there's a little bit of crossover between the two cemeteries or burial spaces. So if you've got a, a body that was interred in 1855, it's difficult to say whether it came from the original burial ground or whether it was originally buried in Cataraki. I still have to cross-reference the church registers, but those aren't always complete either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, record-keeping wasn't great in the 19th century. Better than we give it credit for, but not great. So what kind of records do you go through? What do they look like? Meeting minutes. Really? You know, when you're, you know how when you're a kid, you're like, man, I'd love to go back in time and, like, watch history. Yeah. I would be doing the equivalent of sitting through union meetings, uh-huh. only it would be, like... Victorian our business meetings so I don't I don't know I don't know that that would be very interesting uh, meeting minutes religious periodicals sermons um, burial registers of course I did go through the burial registers newspapers so many newspapers right of course actually Kingston's fabulous because people in Kingston love Kingston because it's so historical right <laughs> it's not quite Niagara on the lake where you walk around and you feel like you're in an historical village that people happen to be living in but it's you know, it's very old, and people are aware that it's old. There's a very self-conscious treatment of that. But um, the nice thing is the local historians there are super, super into it, and they compile records like it's their day job. And I think a lot of them are retired, so it may be at this point. <laughs> but um, somebody compiled every newspaper story relating to the cemetery ever in a file in the yeah. Queen's archives. So, you know... That's that's really good. That saves you a lot of time, you know. And so you're uh, you're digging through lots of sources. You found this is like a really source rich area because of like local people keeping good records and also just lots of organizations. So you were talking a little bit about theological periodicals, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously funerals and and cemeteries are like a religious are, have religious connotations typically. Uh, what would you say is going on in regards to death in this period? Uh, every major Protestant denomination went through 
internal disputes in the mid-19th century, um, they started with Darwin's origin of species, right? And historical analyses of the Bible, believe it or not, because it, it was accepted that the Bible was historical. Those things happened. And then a number of uh, religious clergymen, particularly in the Anglican church, started saying, well, you know, maybe not. Like, let's actually go through this. Because they were finding all these historical documents uh, in the Holy Land, archaeologists were. So it was like, let's compare these records. And they were finding it didn't quite add up. So once the Bible was up for grabs, the sort of fever pitch, I think, was about 1860 or so, when all of a sudden the notion of eternal punishment was up for grabs. So the notion of what happened after you died was for the first time becoming very flexible, you know, because there were a handful of bishops in the Anglican church saying, well, punishment doesn't actually mean hellfire. It actually means a chance to repent. And that's probably not eternal because God is forgiving, etc. You know, so as much as we, that's kind of a shoulder shrug now, that was, that was a profound statement at the time. I mean, the, the fellows who first made these statements were actually tried for heresy. It was fine. It all worked out fine for them. But I mean, it's interesting because Kingston's Anglican community is very reactionary. Um, they signed on to this thing called the Oxford Declaration, which was a condemnation of the, the ruling of the church courts that said that these guys weren't, in fact, heretics, right? I actually think the Anglican church kind of sowed the seeds of its own dissent in terms of sort of this slide into sort of Bishop Travers called it agnosticism which I suppose is as good a word as any, but the Anglican church in the 19th century is characterized by a lot of um, a lot of debate, a lot of very intellectual debate. The religious periodicals are full of people writing letters to one another. Um, the sermons are really smart documents. You can tell they're being written by very literate people. Um, Anglicanism in this period was predominantly an urban church most of the members were middle class. So you're dealing with a very, very educated, uh, rather intellectually driven congregation. And everything was up for debate. It's like, oh, hellfire might not be a thing? Well, let's discuss that. Let's discuss that. And we'll just figure that out. So I think, I think that, was, that was an issue. I haven't been through the, uh, the Methodist and Presbyterian stuff yet because it's in Toronto, but I, I expect to find a very similar, I expect to find a similar pattern. And um, then I guess the follow-up question would be like, how does that translate to how people buried the dead, how people, where people put uh, their lost loved ones? Mm, common wisdom goes that the garden cemetery was the result of sort of a softening of death because if hellfire is not eternal, death is no longer the king of terrors, right? So you don't have as much to be scared of. Um, personally, I think in Kingston, the more interesting aspect is why the church suddenly quite willingly retreated from the care of the burial ground. When Cataraki was opened, um, there wasn't a ton of interest in it from the clergy. I mean, it took, because they bought the land in 1853, and it took until 1863 for the Church of England was the first church to approach them about uh, consecrating the grounds. And up until then, there was really no 
no interest uh, on the part of the mainline denominations. Part of that's because the city cemetery closed. But I mean, I think the changing treatment of human remains can't just be attributed to religion or to, you know, health reform or just to aesthetic demands. It, it really is a combination of all of these things. And I think it's a very complicated story. One that I'm just getting into. Uh, I guess we. Sh- I guess I should ask then. Uh, what's like the? What are the major differences between um, a garden uh, graveyard and say our cemetery and a like the 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 olden ways of doing that? One is now a park and one's not. <laughs> um, uh, honestly, though, if you go to Kingston um, Skeleton Park, they call it. That's the site of the old burial ground. There's a music festival there now. It's fun, but. Um, at the time Cataraki was open, the problem with urban burial grounds is that they were getting filled very quickly, right? Because populations were conglomerating, um, and you know, as cities filled, graveyards filled. They needed places to put their dead. The issue with this was they started to look unattractive, and they started to smell. Uh, you'd have leaning tombstones, you'd have remains pushing their way up out of the ground, bits of caskets children making off with arm bones um people would put their animals to pasture there's ample evidence of that in kingston um the other problem was they started to be havens for sort of illegal and immoral activity and there were some really gruesome discoveries in in kingston's burial ground they found the body of an abandoned infant buried in the snow in 1843 and they found the remains, or rather the corpse, of a woman who had evidently drank herself to death and then died in the cemetery up against a tombstone. So, you know, when these cemeteries became overfilled, they started to be... They weren't cared for in the same way, right? There wasn't a ton to do. So they got muddy, they got dirty, gross things started to happen in them. You know, rumors of prostitutes taking their clients there and whatnot. It's all very sordid. So... You know, you have that, and then the Garden Cemetery is such a contrast because they were ideally located outside the city, right? Health concerns. Um, They were regulated. You had to bury the bodies so deep. When you go through the act of incorporation, there's instructions for burial. Um, You know, and they were really beautiful places. They were landscaped according to the demands of capital R Romantic era landscaping. So what you're talking about is an environment that's constructed to look natural. Um, And the superintendent there was very, I think he was very good at his job and he was very interested in making sure the cemetery was as picturesque as possible. So it's a nice space. So at at this time that you're speaking of when everything kind of turned out, it was the church's sort of change of stance and the idea of death, the open conversation about it, not being so fearful, it, that's what led to more of the uh, beautification, I guess, or the... I think it's one of the things that led to it. It's, it's um, not so much that that's when, you know, it went from being religious run to being secularly run, kind I don't of know, like we yeah, see now. And I mean, I don't know that the cemetery was ever secular space until the very late 19th century, because... I mean, once the Anglican Church said, oh, you know, we're going to consecrate this baby, then the other denominations freaked out. They sent a a letter threatening the cemetery company with legal action. The compromise they came up with was actually, it was delightful, really. They said, you know what, the bishop, he can go ahead and and consecrate the ground, but um, it only applies to the Anglicans. 
So don't worry, Presbyterians and Methodists, <laughs> that consecration only applies to Anglicans. So, and I mean, they, they were fine with it, right? But you can see sort of this thing where this, there's a tension between the cemetery as sacred ground, which it was. There's no denying that. And the church kind of, I think, being very amicable to the notion of washing its hands of the physical space. Hmm. Because the churches in Kingston and honestly throughout Ontario, they'd gone through an enthusiastic but ill-planned sort of glut of church building. They built so many churches. I mean, Kingston's diocese almost bankrupted itself building uh, St. George, like huge cathedrals. They built churches without the congregations to fill them was the problem. They were assuming the congregations would keep growing at the pace they had been uh, in sort of the 1830 to 1870, you know, the late colonial early confederation period but that just didn't happen you know right. so you had half empty churches and of course you can only charge so much pew rent and the the revenue just wasn't there and i mean i know in the anglican church there was uh there was evidence that certain endowments that had been intended to uh, intended for use on keeping up the cemetery they'd been redirected elsewhere because there were financial issues so the cemetery in the city, or rather, I guess the burial ground is more accurate. The burial ground within the city had already become very secondary by the time Cataraki was built. And it really was an eyesore, I think. Well, and health hazard, as yeah, you said. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that's around the time, amid um, 19th centuries, around the time of Louis Pasteur and all those things. And they the germ theory of disease. Yeah, I think that took some time to get here. <laughs> I don't know. They were they were still, like, you can tell by reading the, the articles in the wig that they were still pretty into miasma theory. Oh, okay. So, because they, they were all on about the smell, right? Uh, yes. It's all about the foul odor. So, you were saying that this change in how cemeteries are constructed was not just, like, uh, due to change, like, theological changes, but also due to other social and political factors at the time. What would you say some of those are? Well, urban burial grounds were gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were really, they were awful. Like, you know, they were dirty and an eyesore and too full. Um, there was a lot more intervention on the part of government, sort of capital of the state. Uh, so you had municipal governments becoming more interested in regulating these kinds of activities. You had provincial governments becoming interested in regulating these activities. Um, because bureaucracies were growing, right? These these structures were in place. And I think part of the story is the simple fact that the bureaucratic structures of managing a settlement shifted from the church to the state, right? Because prior to this, the church took care of a lot of this. Like, registering deaths was solely done by the church. But I, I know the um, the superintendent of Cataraki was bemoaning the fact, I think it was, I think it was early 1870, he was bemoaning the fact that he had to send these you know, death, uh, death certificates and proof of burial in like triplicate to three different agencies, right? So <laughs> the start of bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. So there was there was some frustration there, but um, you know there was that practical concerns. Is is that a very Canadian thing that the state big big the state got involved at that time, or no? Is <laughs> no, the state was getting like. The, the 19th century in North America, you had the growth of bureaucracy, right? Mm-hmm. The, the U.S. Came of, urge a little, uh, came of age rather a little bit earlier than we did, but you still see the same patterns. Um, you know, Cataraki was actually 
<clears throat> Cataraki was actually um, based on models of American cemeteries, and their superintendent went and toured American cemeteries all the way from New York down to Mount Auburn in Boston, which he had nothing good to say about, actually. Um, you know, he toured all of them in 1883 and uh, started to turn Cataraki sort of towards a more progressive model as a result. So I think it's, I think it's a pattern that, that extends beyond Canada. We like to think Canada is so exceptional and so special, but it isn't. Okay, so we probably have time for one more question. <laughs> so, oh, I gotta make it a good one then. <laughs> so then, but uh, besides, I see. I want to go into the question about like, I remember in the past hearing that like, uh, until a certain point, you know, uh, your burial site wasn't guaranteed forever. But then that started to change. But I believe that's more in like crowded European cities. Yeah. Uh, so Do you secretly just want to ask what the grossest story I've come across is? is that, that sounds like the best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. I absolutely so, do. Uh, yeah. uh, what's the, so what's the most macabre story that you've thought you've uh, come across in the, your research in the graveyards? The most macabre story I found um, was attributed in the Kingston newspaper to Toronto medical students, but I'm still convinced it was Queens because there was, there was disciplinary talk in the meeting minutes of the medical school. But what the medical students did is they would find local drunks that were passed out, take them into the anatomy storage room where all the half-dissected corpses were and leave them there to wake up. So the guy would wake up, see all these half-dissected corpses and run like a bat out of hell, scared out of his wits. So that was pretty, that was pretty gross. So I guess a prank? Yeah, they, <laughs> they thought it was funny. Yeah. I can't um, imagine anyone these days doing something as cruel as that. You would 100% get arrested. <laughs> That's That might be the one thing that stops people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that human nature shifts that much. Um, the other really gross one was actually courtesy of a, a colleague of mine in the union. He had a friend who was helping dig up the remains. Because in Kingston, around the old burial ground, you find remains all the time, right? They turn up when you're digging new power line easements, and then, of course, you have to call in the archaeologists, and they have to dig them up, and the police have to make sure that it's not actually a murder victim, you know, like on bones or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they dug up this one guy, and the soil in Kingston is quite clay-heavy, so the grave had actually filled with water. And it turns out that when human remains are sitting in water for a couple hundred years... Um, the fat layer turns into adipose. It's like a soapy substance. Mm. So I guess someone touched the guy's face and the skin just sloughed right off. And uh, they named him Mr. Soapy. I like to tell that one as an icebreaker, but someone once told me I shouldn't. <laughs> I say you don't need that kind of negativity in your I, life. I, that's, that's what I said. Nice. That also sums up your disposition. <laughs> All right, Kaylee, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Thank you for having me. No problem. If you ever want to come back... Well, you know, I'm going to the Anglican archives in, in probably June, so I could come back and tell you all about how that went. See you in the summer, then. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> Take care. Yeah. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.